come here and tell us about some of the poisonous ideas that have the churches these days crippled. And thank you for being here. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. John got me so excited, he was almost speaking my first point. That was great. He told me I should hold the microphone very close to my mouth. I feel like a, a sultry lounge singer. Or something like that. So, um, very grateful to be here. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, John, Charlie, for my dear friends Bob Lynn and Lowell and Judge Graves that helped make this part of the trip a possibility. I'm very grateful. So, I lead the Center for Culture Leadership and have for 15 years. It's a conservative, Christian, conservative both theologically and politically, conservative, Christian think tank. Before that, I worked for a... He's telling me I need to get it even closer. Maybe if I did... Ah, conservative Christian think tank. Before that, I worked for another conservative Christian think tank. I guess I'm just a think tank kind of guy. Now, what's a think tank? We know there are liberal think tanks and moderate think tanks and conservative think tanks. Well, what's... I was thinking about this. What's a tank? Well, a tank, militarily, is a, is a vehicle that runs over and blows up things. And basically, CCL, among other things, runs over and blows up things. But it's a think tank, a think tank, and therefore it runs over and blows up bad ideas. Uh, how many of you have heard the expression, ideas have consequences? How many of you know that's actually based on a book written by a conservative in the 40s? His name is Richard Weaver. That's the name of the book, Ideas Have Consequences. A great conservative book. Weaver was one of the great conservatives of the 20th century. Ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have bad consequences. Now, when you look around in our culture today, and specifically in politics, we see a lot of bad consequences. Don't we? The Holocaust of abortion, same-sex marriage. Uh, that's actually wrong. It's not marriage. It's not marriage. So whenever I write it, I'm a writer, I put quotation marks around marriage. It's not marriage. It's, same, it's not good. It's same-sex something same-sex sin, but it's certainly not marriage. And then, of course, the massive growth of the federal government. Just, it's become a monster. It's become, as Thomas Hobbes said, it really has become the Leviathan, the monster. And the growth of pornography and gun control legislation and the destruction of the family. And we could talk and go on and on. All of those things are bad consequences, and I think everybody here would agree with that. But at the root of those bad consequences are bad ideas. Did you know that? They're bad ideas. And we won't eventually get rid of these bad consequences until we can attack the bad ideas at the root of them. And that's what CCL and other Christian conservative intellectuals do. We try to run over and blow up those bad ideas. And I want to do that today. 
But actually today, I'm not going to be talking so much about the specific bad political ideas and consequences, though it certainly relates to that. I'm going to talk about the bad ideas in the church that create a vacuum that allows these consequences to occur. I would say that most of us here are church people. Is that a fair thing to say? Most of you here, maybe not everyone, but most of you are church people. And I would venture to say that many of us here today feel maybe a little conflicted. Not about our conservative beliefs, but about the relationship between our conservative beliefs and action. Oh, let's think about this. John stole my line. You are not allowed to do that, John. He stole my very line. OPAC. This is a political... What's the next word? Action. Not a political sit on your death committee. Is that correct? It's a political action committee. So we go to churches often, and even if they have political, uh, politically conservative convictions, and often the pastor does, and that's a good thing, they would often look at what OPAC does as something ancillary, secondary. It's not especially Christian, but you know, I'm, I'm glad John and Charlie, I heard they have something going like every Wednesday, and I guess it's okay, I mean, it's better than the liberals. But it's not really something Christian. It's not all that important. And I'm glad a few people go down there. And I'm glad they're trying to get the right kind of legislation passed and get the right people elected. I guess we need them. But that's not the really important work. How many of you have heard or felt that sentiment from your church or churches? Maybe not in those words, but that sense, that feeling. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right. You know what I'm talking about. Well, here's what I want to do briefly today. I hope that by the time you leave today, you will understand this. It's not in spite of the fact that you're a good Christian that you do the work here with Oak Pack. It is or should be because you're a good Christian. That what you're doing here is distinctively good and necessary. Not just politically conservative work. That's great. It's Christian work. And I would go so far as to say this, what you're doing, to the extent that you're faithful, and I believe you guys are, this is a Christian ministry. John just called it a church. He's basically right about that. It's Christian ministry. So I'm going to attack today. Attack. I do things like that. I'm not one of these non-judgmental guys. Bob, tell them I'm not non-judgmental. Okay. I'm going to attack three bad ideas in the church that lead to bad political consequences. The first one is, and you may have heard of it before, the first one is pietism. Pietism. Now, let me explain what I don't mean by that. I don't mean by that piety. Piety is reverence for God. It's loving God with all of our heart, soul, strength, might, and mind. Trusting in Christ for salvation. Piety is a good thing. And we need more of that. There was also a movement, pietism, some of you historically may know, late in the 16th, early in the 17th century, of people wanting to get away from cold, hard, 
orthodoxy and back to a heart given fully to God. That's a good form of pietism, and I'm not criticizing that. I'm criticizing something that is a little more recent. By pietism, I mean a way of thinking that says this. The Christian faith is exhausted by and limited to basically vertical concerns of reading your Bible and praying a little bit and having your quiet time and going to church on Sunday and maybe inviting someone to church and supporting the missions program and Awana program and then going home and not being especially concerned about what's going on in society. That is basically pietism. And the good Christians, the best Christians, are those who do those things. And the Christians who come to Oak Pack and try to get godly people elected and try to reduce the gun control legislation and stand up very publicly and loudly in defense of unborn life and oppose euthanasia and attack the great leviathan of the state, that's basically, the pietists would say, that's basically a distraction. And they would say, John and Charlie, what you're really doing, it's not so bad as it is, it's kind of distracting the church from the really important things. Now I want to assert to you today that that view is, huh, let me think about the right word for that. That view is stupid. Okay. It's wrong. And let me tell you why. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 1 and Colossians and elsewhere that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master. Did you know that's actually the first creed of the Christian church? Some of us in our churches, we say the Apostles' Creed, and we think that's got to be like the oldest creed. It goes back in the early centuries of the church, but it's really not. The earliest creed of the church is actually a three-word creed. Creed. It was two in original languages, but it's three for us, three words. And it's this, Jesus is Lord. Now, we all agree on that, all of us that are Christians. I certainly hope you agree with that. And so I have a question. What is Jesus Lord of? Everything. 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 He's Lord of everything. Uh, he's Lord of our, our hearts. He's Lord of our minds. He's Lord of our marriages. He's Lord of our children. He's Lord of our families. He's Lord of our jobs. He's Lord of our churches. And we can't stop there. He's Lord of education. And he's Lord of technology. And he's Lord of politics. And he's Lord of government. And he's Lord not just of the house, but also the White House. And the State House. And the School House. He's Lord of everything. To all of the pietists who say, well, you guys at Oak Pack, we really kind of, you're kind of distracting us from the true Christian calling. What they're really saying, unintentionally no doubt, but what they're really saying is Jesus really isn't Lord of everything. That's what they're really saying. And my friends, I would assert to you that that is a very serious matter. Because Jesus Christ is in fact Lord of all things. And uh, every Wednesday when John stands up here and rouses you truths, let's say that the issue is same-sex marriage, 
or to elect uh, representatives that are going to oppose and outlaw abortion, he's not principally making a politically conservative statement. He's making a Christian statement, and he's speaking as a Christian, as every Christian should speak and act. He's being a good Christian, not just a good conservative. Don't misunderstand, he is a good conservative, and that's great. That's the way it should be. I guess I'm suggesting to you, you can't really and shouldn't really separate political conservatism from biblical Christianity. Now, I know my liberal friends, like Jim Wallace and others, would just fall off their chair to hear that. But it's really true. Not because there's something sacrosanct about the name politically conservative, but the basic convictions of political conservatism in this country, the basic convictions, I don't mean everything everybody is a conservative said, says, but the basic convictions are basically biblical convictions. And that's why we hold them. That's why we hold them. So don't feel guilt when the pastor says, come on, you're trying to influence people to... Vote for a proposition that would defund Planned Parenthood? Well, I guess that's kind of okay, but that's not really as important as getting 200 people at the Iwana program. Well, that's wrong. It's not somehow, it's not somehow less Christian. It's not. That then is the danger of pietism, which really undercuts the lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you like to know one of the main reasons that our country is in the shape it's in? For 100 years or more, we have too many... Cons I don't mean the liberal churches. I mean the conservative churches. Who step back and say, I don't think we should be involved in politics. And that's not really Christian. We shouldn't be doing that. And then they wonder why the country's going to hell in a handbag. I know why it is. Because they have not been doing their Christian duty. You say, Andrew, you mean they haven't been doing their conservative duty? No, that's not what I said. They have not been doing their Christian duty in leading the church. They hold to what I like to call the separation of church and politics. The separation of church and politics. <clears throat> Tragically. So, one bad idea is precisely that. Now, I'd like to mention another really bad idea. Not only pietism, but also apocalypticism. You know, before I go on, I want to mention one thing very quickly. You know, there really is this, what I like to call the, the pietist secularist treaty. The pietist secularist treaty. You wouldn't believe that the pietists and the secularists agree, but they do. Listen to this. The secularists say, Christians should keep religion in their churches, and the pietists say, we agree. And the secularists say Christians shouldn't try to impose their views on anybody else in politics. And what do the pietists say? We agree. we agree. And the secularists say we secularists should be the ones running the country. And the pietists say, you know, I think it's about time we stop agreeing with the secularists. Amen. 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 So... The next bad idea, it's a long word, but it's easy to understand, apocalypticism. If you're writing one abbreviated, just put AP for short, not Associated Press. Apocalypticism. Now, by apocalypticism, I mean basically 
End is near. End of the world thinking. The world's getting worse and worse. So it's really a waste of time to try to change things. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? Our culture is like the Titanic. It has hit the great iceberg and it is sinking. Why are you guys trying to rearrange the deck furniture when the ship is going down? Now, I don't care what your eschatology is. Now, how many of you here know what that word eschatology means? What does it mean? Your view of the future. There are all sorts of eschatological... Isn't that cool? The smart people can use big words. Eschatological views are... I mean, there's premillennialism and there's amillennialism and there's postmillennialism and there's pre-tribulation and there's mid-tribulation rapturism and there's post-tribulation rapturism and there's partial rapturism and I'm running out of breath. Yes, pan. Pan millennialism, it'll all pan out in the end. I'm not here today to try to change anybody's eschatological view. You have any one of those views you want, but don't be an apocalypticist. The apocalypticist says, Well, I heard from somebody on the radio, my favorite guru teacher, that Jesus is going to be back Thursday before lunch. And what in the world are you guys doing down at Oak Pack wasting your time when we need to get ready for Jesus coming? My friends, that view is, um, I'm trying to think for the right wor- of the right word for it. Somebody help me. What's the right word for that view? Stupid. Stupid. Yes. Now, we don't need to know about the end times. Guess what? They will get here when they get here. That's very interesting. Jesus, the disciples had that problem before Jesus returned to heaven and ascended. I'll read a scripture text quickly, Acts chapter 1. So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And for the Jews, that meant the final days, the final time. Everything would be set right. We'll get rid of these wicked Romans. And he said to them, I'm going to tell you exactly when it is, and you guys go hide out. That's not what your Bible says. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. In other words, you don't need to know that. Quit being nosy. And I would say that to all these date setters. You think you're, like, smarter than Jesus? Do you know the Bible actually says that Jesus in his humanity says only the Father knows that? Jesus was all-knowing, don't misunderstand. But he willingly limited his knowledge in the flesh. And he said, only my Father in heaven knows that. So they're claiming to know more than Jesus in the flesh. I would like to call that something, not just stupid, but blasphemy. But blasphemy. No, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll go hide out and you won't influence anybody. No, that's not what it says. You will receive power and be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said witnesses, he meant witnesses to him in his totality. Not just taking people to heaven, but his lordship in all of life. And that's what we're called to do. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19 verse 13, Jesus in a parable said to his followers, Engage in business until I come. In other words, stay busy. You know, years ago... I thought, there's a level of perversity to this apocalyptic thing. 
I was speaking some of these same things to a group of pastors in Ohio, lamenting, of course, the Holocaust of abortion and, and the pornography and homosexuality. People hadn't even thought of same-sex marriage then. Well, the homosexual elites had, but the rest of society hadn't. And socialism and government intervention and all of these things. And I was trying to rouse them, as I'm trying to rouse you today, to stand up for the truth, to stand in the pulpit, to declare the truth, to engage the, con uh, the congregation, to not just vote in a particular way, to, but to influence other people, to influence politics and other areas of culture. Well, afterward, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Pastor, good, pious, and pietistic, pastor came up to me. He says, Andrew, you know, I, I basically agree with you. All this abortion, and it just hurts my heart, and all the, just the increasing homosexuality, and the government is just getting involved more and more in our lives, and they're taking away our guns, and taking away our religious liberty, and it's bad. But really, it's good, because that means Jesus is coming. Now, if that idea sounds perverse and perverted, it's because it is. It's presumptuous. Presumptuous, perverse perverted. And anytime you hear any Christian say, well, that's bad, but it's really good. Uh, no, I don't think so. When it's bad, it's bad. So what is terribly disturbing and to me infuriating, and I do get infuriated, you know, it is biblical to get angry. There's nothing wrong with getting angry about things that should get, you should get angry about. Is churches holding their end times prophetic conferences and selling all their books and inviting thousands of people while, meanwhile, Planned Parenthood is crushing the bodies of little babies and selling their body parts off to the highest bidder? And these churches are worried about how many toes are on the image of the beast and what color toe polish is on the toes. <laughs> That is another example of perversity. Apocalypticism is a bad idea. And it essentially turns the culture over to the devil. And then finally, a fine, a finally a third bad idea is retreatism. Retreatism. So we've got pietism, apocalypticism, and retreatism. Recently, a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the younger guys, declared, we have lost the culture wars. Let's come to the conclusion, let's look ourselves in the mirror and know that we have lost the culture wars, so let's do nothing more than just be witnesses. Let's be careful about addressing social issues. We're turning people off, particularly younger people. We need to change our strategy. And he would strongly oppose the strategy that OPAC is involved in and the Center for Cultural Leadership. And so churches sadly have lined up to retreat, staying out of politics, stopped praying and protesting outside abortion clinics, pulling back from pressing for godly candidates. My friends, the culture war is not over. The culture war is not over because sin is not over. As long as there is sin in the world, there will be sin in the culture. And that's how long the culture wars will last. 
Understand this. God is in the business, through Jesus Christ, of turning back the effects of sin. That's what he's doing. Not only sin in your and my individual life. Isn't that remarkable how people believe in personal sanctification? You know what I mean by that? Well, I need to commit less lust. I need to be careful of my tongue. I need to grow in grace so I think better thoughts. I should treat my spouse better. And as I get more of the Holy Spirit and, and pray, I, I seem to be doing better and I should do better by the power of God. All of that is true. That's what we call individual sanctification. It's remarkable how people believe in individual or personal sanctification, but they don't believe in social and political sanctification. Understand where I'm going there? If we're Christians, we need to believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is strong enough to help us little by little, as difficult as it is, to turn back evil in our society. So... There is an attitude also similar to this that, well, the devil is very alive and well on planet Earth. And I think we're going to pull inside our churches and in our homes and let's just hide out from the devil. Let's just hide out from the devil. And maybe he will leave us alone. Well, I want you to know something. You might hide out from the devil, but the devil will not hide out from you. And if we refuse to engage Satan in the culture, he will start engaging us inside the church and inside the home everywhere. And if you and I think that by retreating, we're going to protect something, you, as a Christian, you don't protect anything by retreating. You only protect by advancing and taking territory. And the minute you say, I think we're going to retreat and then everything will be all right, Satan has already won a big victory. And that is happening in thousands of churches across the United States because of their willingness to retreat. At the base of this is the idea that basically this world belongs to the devil by right. Hmm. You may have heard some of our songs don't exactly express it as they should theologically. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Well, I dare say you actually didn't read that in the Bible. You did read this in 1 Corinthians 10.26. For the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. My friends, this is God's world. He created it. He sustains it. He designs for it to be operated by his truth. He has allowed man freedom. Even sinful man, he's allowed them sinful man freedom. Not the right, but the freedom to turn against him. And of course, we know that's happened. And that's produced the great battle since the Garden of Eden. The great battle in the world, in our individual lives, and in our churches and families, and in politics, and in the culture. That's the battle that is raging, and will continue to rage. But my friends, if we give up the battle in the culture, we are traitors to the king. Because it's not our world, it's his world. It's his world. And we're required as his soldiers to press his claims everywhere we go. Pietism, apocalypticism, retreatism, those are bad church ideas. Bad church ideas. Now here's what I'd like for you to do. Some of you have taken notes. Last time that I spoke here, some of you asked for my talk. Um, I think it was um, Theological Presuppositions of Political Liberalism. 
Uh, I didn't have a copy, but it's been printed as a booklet. It's on the table. But I want to tell you something else. I didn't make the same mistake this time, and John will be happy that I corrected my mistake. Uh, my mistake. This talk that I just gave, the full version of it, it's back there on the table. You can have it for free. Take it, make copies of it, especially make copies for your pastor and church leadership team. And if they get really, really mad, that may tell you something. Now, I don't mind if they would disagree with me on this point or that. We're all fallible. We make mistakes. But if they come running to you with this paper and say, who is this Sandlin guy? This is really terrible. You might want to be saying, uh, uh, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Right. <laughs> Amen, Reverend Sandlin. That's good preaching. So I'm saying in conclusion, there is no conflict between true Christianity and conservative political action. None whatsoever. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you have churches that either implicitly or actively discourage the kinds of things going on here, they're not being faithful to Christianity. They're not. They're just not. Back in the early 40s, some of you know this account... Uh, there was a great euphoria in Great Britain over the rescue of thousands and thousands of British troops from the Germans. You where? At Dunkirk. What an amazing. The largest military evacuation, as far as we know, in the history of the world. What a sight it must have been there in the English Channel. Just little boats, small little four-person boats were commandeered to go across the channel quickly at Dunkirk and bring back these boys that would have been captured. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of them, all of the vessels going over and coming back. You can imagine that all, or virtually all, very few were lost, virtually all got back to safety. And there was a great euphoria in Great Britain over this. And many of the generals and others were saying, what a relief. We can now talk to Hitler and say, hey, you just stay there, we'll stay here. We'll sue for peace. You have all the continents you want to have. Just leave us alone. My, are we relieved. Amid that euphoria... A pugnacious prime minister whose name was said this, wars are not won by evacuations. And for all of the Christians and churches around who are just waiting to be raptured up to get us out of the mess and not deal with what is here and press the claims of Christianity and hope that we will be gone, I assure you wars are not won by evacuations. And he says in these immortal words, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Those should be the words of the church of Jesus Christ. Those words. That must be the rallying cry of those of us who serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I would like you to join me in getting in the tank, your own tank, here in Oklahoma, and run over and blow up these really bad ideas because they produce bad political consequences. Thank you very much. Andrew, thank you so much for this word. Why don't you just stay right here? Yep. And if you have a question, we've got uh, 10 minutes or so left. Why don't you come up here and ask a question on camera and on the microphone? And. Uh, Thank you all for applauding a great word. I don't know if you clap in your churches at home, but it's okay to clap here if you appreciate something. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you again. Uh, a couple of